What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu visit. You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Who's buried in Midian? Ain't nothing but dead folk. Somewhere. (laughs) Hidden from sight. Closer than you might think. (laughs) Is a place that's not on any map. Midian. Something's reading there. It looks a lot like hell. But they call it home. There goes the neighborhood. They're not pretty. They're not neighborly. Y'all come back now, you hear? They're not even human. But this time, they're the good guys. From the imagination of Clive Barker comes Nightbreed. You can't go down there! They have only one enemy. A beast called Man. Sworn to destroy the Nightbreed. Sounds like we're going head-to-head with the devil himself. And only one chance. A man. Called Boone. It's time to fight! Go get him, boys! I'll kill you! What chance have we got? They're armed. So am I. Out of your deepest fears and your darkest fantasies, Clive Barker brings you a startling new breed of adventure. I won't let you down. Nightbreed. At last, the night has a hero. Outstanding. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Tim Luz. Hello. Nice to be back with the Tribes of the Moon. Also back in the booth is Ms. Sam Deegan. Hello. On this special episode, we are looking at Clive Barker's Nightbreed. It's the story of Aaron Boone, played by Craig Sheffer. He dreams of a place called Midian, an underground world of monsters. For some reason, his psychiatrist, Dr. Decker, played by David Cronenberg, also wants to go there, but to destroy all monster life. I hope I'm getting this plot synopsis right. 
I've watched this movie four times now, maybe five, and still not quite sure of all the rules Midian or the motivation for our characters, so maybe we'll be able to figure that out as we go along. Of course, we're going to be spoiling this film as much as it can be spoiled, so you have been warned. So Sam, when was the first time you saw Nightbreed, and what did you think? I saw Nightbreed when I was about 13, I want to say, and the reason for that is my dad is a huge horror fiction fan, but especially Clive Barker. And so I saw Hellraiser and Nightbreed and things like that, probably before most people's parents would allow them to. I don't know if it's just those sorts of nostalgic associations from having seen it at such an important time in my life. But definitely as a teenager, I would hear people talk about Nightbreed in a really negative light. And I found it very frustrating because I love this film. And I feel like it's a perfect sort of like kind of horror fairy tale. And so even though there are issues with the cuts especially the theatrical cut that I'm sure we're going to get into. I just think it's wonderful, and I I can't understand anyone who disagrees. How about you, Tim? I remember seeing the promotion and assuming because the marketing on this was terrible that it was just another slasher movie and didn't quite interest me. It's funny, the thing that turned me around was I remember they made two different Amiga computer games for this movie, and I remember seeing the art and seeing the creatures and realizing, oh no, this is much more up my alley. So I taped it off HBO late one night and watched it at like 3 a.m., which is really the best time to watch this movie, I think. And I had the same reaction to this that I had the first time I saw Blade Runner. I absolutely love this movie, and then it has a really weird ending scene that not doesn't quite ruin it for me, but makes no sense. And again, as in with that film, I was very happy to find out that ending was not the original intended ending. But yeah, I love this movie. I've grown to love it even more as I've read the novella and seen the various cuts and read the comics and... I've had to defend it in many conversations and uh, may have to do so again for a few points on this one. But yeah, I adore it. So basically, anyone who made it this far in, Tim and I will show up at your house and fight you. Well, I'm looking forward to the visit because um, I remember this playing at the theater where I worked at. So when it came out and uh, the poster was pretty awesome, all the the great uh, monsters on there, the moon-faced guy who looked like Mac Tonight, uh, the uh, Big Mac logo person, played by Doug Jones, which I found out recently. Um, and I remember cleaning this theater. It played in Theater 4 for whatever reason. I remember that. I played in Theater 4 for a long time. And I would go in and just kind of steal little glances, you know, quote-unquote aisle checks. But uh, a cleaned during the credits, so I got to see that post-credit scene of Cronenberg coming back to life with that weird guy, the priest who uh, puts his fist into Cronenberg's belly. I'm thinking that's a reference to Videodrome, maybe. And I'm just like, okay, well, th- this, this is cool. Nice, nice way to end it. But it took me quite a few years to finally sit down and watch it. And then I now have watched, I've, I unfortunately watched the director's cut first recently because I saw the theatrical cut. I saw the director's cut. I've seen the cabal cut. I just finished watching the theatrical cut and I watched another cut and I didn't see a whole lot more in the theatrical cut or in the director's cut where I was just like, Oh wow, that was a really necessary scene. I thought it kind of dragged a little bit. As much as I love this movie, one thing that I find to be really annoying, not in all cases, but in most cases, is when years later, a director or a studio or or something like that, but it's usually a director, 
will release a different version of their film. And since you brought up Blade Runner, I think Ridley Scott is sort of the most egregious uh, perpetrator of this. But with Nightbreed, it's great that you can see that extra footage, but I don't think most of it was necessary. It's cool in a historical way to see what wound up being cut. But like, you could have just put those scenes in as special features. They didn't really need to be in the movie. Watching the theatrical cut again this morning, I did find it felt so much choppier to me now after seeing the director's cut. I feel like, especially in the first act, there's a little bit more room to breathe. There's a little bit more room to feel Boone and Laurie's relationship a bit more than it was. It was in such a rush in the original theatrical cut. And I do feel that last scene with Laurie at the end is so important. I feel like it really doesn't work without that final scene. So I definitely think there are are advantages to the director's cut that really enhanced the film for me. I think right now I'm to the point where I'm filling in the holes when I see the shorter version and I'm just like, okay, yeah, this is the part where we get to see Boone go back to the apartment and he has this little fantasy and he sees himself coming down the stairs and making out with Lori. And then we get a little bit more of this. So I'm I'm seeing these moments in my head. So I've talked about this before. There have been several episodes of the show that I've done before where it's like, I didn't know which version of this to watch first. And so I, like I said, I think I went the wrong way about this because now I'm filling in things. Like when I saw the cabal cut, I was just like, I'm not really seeing a whole lot more than what I kind of assumed was already there. But the things that are missing from this film are the things like I was saying in the intro where it's like, I don't know why Dr. Decker wants to go to Midian and destroy the monsters. I don't know how Boone is, this is kind of a Messiah story. I don't know how he is the Messiah to the Nightbreed, because he seems like a dude. And the whole thing where they're talking about, you used to have these nightmares and scream out things. And I'm just like, I would like to see that and kind of get a little bit more of that. I feel definitely, Tim, you are at an advantage and probably you too, Sam, because I imagine you also read the novel, whereas I'm not reading the novel. I'm completely lost a lot of times. I hate to ruin this for you, but unfortunately, I think a lot of those narrative holes are also in the novel. Like when the novel starts off, you don't meet Laurie for like 30 or 40 pages or something. And you're just sort of told secondhand about their relationship. Like it's basically him thinking about the fact that they just started dating and he has these really strong feelings for her. He promised her he'd never leave her, even though he knows that that's probably impossible with his psychiatric history. But the novel's sort of the same way where it just like, it doesn't really give you any reason to believe that how strong their relationship is. It just kind of like dumps it in your lap and expects you to accept it. And it's the same kind of thing also with Decker, where my assumption, and maybe I just imagined this, or this was just my like kid brain interpretation, but my assumption was that Decker just wanted to kind of be the most alpha murderer and wanted to be sort of the most fearsome monster. So that's why he wanted to destroy Midian. But I don't really think it gives you any clear reason. 
one thing that is lost in the movie in a couple different ways, and I feel like it's not quite a negative, but I feel I understand why they had to change it. In the book, Boone is actually very creepy and disturbed, and you really get the sense that, yes, he actually could be this murderer. And there's a whole subplot where Boone is impotent, that his relationship with Laurie's been very kind of shaky because they've never actually been able to consummate their relationship and you can see it tears him apart and she's trying to be supportive and still kind of hang on to him and i can understand why you know movie producers would have been like you can't have that in a movie we can't have that and also i think that barker was looking ahead to this as a series and this idea of boone as this big kind of luke skywalker hero and didn't want to start it with him being a really creepy odd shifty character that we might think actually is a murderer so I think the casting of Craig Sheffer is kind of a step in that direction to make him a little bit more outwardly heroic. As for Decker, this is where it gets kind of funny. The first time I saw this movie, I totally misinterpreted his motive when he has that whole speech about breeders. I thought that Decker had been hunting Nightbreed this whole time and framed Boone and actually put the idea of Midian in his head so Boone would lead him to the Nightbreed. But it wasn't until later I realized that the breeder thing is something else. In fact, in the book, as I remember it, um, Decker's just thing is basically just that he gets off on murdering people. He develops what he calls, if you'll pardon the term, a murder hard where while he's killing people. And I feel like when uh, the producers wanted Barker to expand Decker's part because they clearly saw, oh, he's the mass killer. He's going to be our franchise villain. We need more of him. They tried to put more motivations on him. Like Decker doesn't really have a, a motive to go kill the breed if... Otherwise, I mean, his real motive for the second half of the story is just that he wants to make sure Boone and Laurie are dead because they're the ones who know he's actually the murderer. In that context, it would make a lot of sense. And once they added that scene with the gas station guy where he suddenly declares, oh, I'm here to destroy the breed, it does feel a little out of place. It starts off a little bit like Red Dragon where you're introduced to this serial killer who seems to enjoy killing families. You get the sense that he he's almost painted in the book as being this kind of like a little bit film noirish, like he's just supposed to be this huge giant guy who really is a little bit in the first couple chapters, like, like this sort of puppet mastery type figure, like Boone, like Tim was just saying is really disturbed and does not have a firm grasp of reality. There's also the weirdest thing that definitely uh, at least I don't think makes it into the film. There's this really weird passage when you finally meet Laurie where she talks about how she can't believe that Boone has agreed to be in a relationship with her because of how beautiful he is and how he has this like face that draws everyone to him. And it just is not Craig Sheffer to me. No offense, Craig. <laughs> I remember when Craig Sheffer was a thing. That was a month uh, at one point where he was a thing. <laughs> and it's just, it's so strange because I'm like, I know this guy. I know I've seen him in other things, but I mean, he's pretty much known for Nightbreed. I remember him showing up and like a river runs through it and a few other things, but it's like, it's so weird how he just kind of dropped off the face of the earth for a lot of stuff. Um, and I was really glad when he got so dressed up for the post, um, for the extras for the DVD, you know, with the do rag and the shirt that needed to be wrinkled. Thanks for showing up, Craig. Uh, have you seen Turbulence 3, either of you? I haven't gotten that far into the Turbulence franchise, the whole Turbulence legacy, no. <laughs> I would be very lost if I went to the third one without seeing the first two. No, 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 that's not correct. So it's sort of like those Ghost House movies where 
they're all sort of shoehorned into this franchise, but none of them have a goddamn thing to do with each other. Like, all three of them take place on airplanes during hijackings, but all the plots are totally different. I want to say that Craig Sheffer is in two and three, or he's in one and three, but he plays totally different characters. But in three, he plays this like genius hacker. He's sort of like conned into working with this FBI agent because she pretends to be a pizza delivery man and like lets herself into his house. I am sold. (laughs) Seriously, everyone should watch Turbulence 3. The main plot is basically this Marilyn Manson type like satanic rock band is playing a live concert on an airplane, but then the plane gets hijacked by real Satanists. Oh my God. (laughs) Like I, I, I couldn't make this shit up, but basically Craig Sheffer's character is so it's like, he's come so far since Boone. He wears this bandana and he has an unfortunate goatee and he wears a very similar, like rumpled shirt. You're just like Craig how did you go from being sort of like Stephen Dorfish to the bandana and the goatee? It's funny because I always associate him with the asshole boyfriend from Some Kind of Wonderful. So seeing him play the good guy in this for me was kind of weird at the time. And it's funny because he actually returned to the Clive Barker universe in The Fifth Hellraiser. He actually got to be briefly reunited with uh, Doug Bradley. And despite the fact that that's clearly another horror script that they just kind of stuck Pinhead in to make it a Hellraiser movie, it's actually not bad. It's a pretty good film. Is that the space one? No, it's the it's sort of the film noir one where he's this detective investigating this murder that involves the puzzle boxes. I think it was uh, one of Scott Derrickson's first films, actually. I'll have to see it. I'll watch that if you watch Turbulence 3. All right. I will watch. I will hunt down Turbulence 3. I'll, I'll do the whole series again. I've only seen the first one. but <laughs> So I suppose with Boone having troubles in bed, it kind of would fit a little bit better. Him not consummating the relationship with Lori would fit better for the metaphor of Midian being this kind of like, I mean, the Nightbreed being this metaphor for like coming out. I mean, I I was kind of seeing this as a coming out metaphor. I don't know if it's just that I just saw Scream Queen or not, but just this whole idea of this is where the misfits are. This is where the cool kids are. This is where you go to not be picked on by the world. It just felt like, and I don't know if I'm just reading too much in, knowing that Clyde Barker is gay, just like, yeah, this is a, a place where you can have refuge. And it just felt like this was the metaphor. But then having Boone having a relationship with Lori, I'm like, well, it doesn't necessarily 100% fit. I'm pretty sure Barker has pretty much come out and said that this is a metaphor for his coming out. And I totally agree, especially when you cast it of these people who are being labeled unnatural, who are being oppressed by the police, for one thing, the clergy, and then the medical profession in the form of Dr. Decker. That's definitely how I've always seen it. I mean, I think that's also probably why I fell in love with it so much, because, you know, if you watch... And also read this while you're going through puberty. It It's like whether you're gay or straight, if, if you feel, especially as a kid, if you feel the least bit like weird or out of place, Nightbreed is very, like, I think ties right into that. Not as much as Hellraiser, but I definitely also think there's sort of that element of coming out not just as being gay, but also maybe as having sort of different sexual interests in general, like his fascination with S&M and things like that. 
or having sex while holding a snake, which seems <laughs> to be something that goes on in this movie as well. So it happens. I almost feel like it's sort of the horror version of X-Men. Anybody who has something that's a little different, different religion, different race, different physicality, they can look at this and go, oh, yes, here's a place where I fit in. Totally. But the thing that always confused me, and Mike, I think you brought this up in the intro, is when I saw this movie as a kid, and even when I read the book, I, for some reason, had the impression that Boone was like a latent night breed and he just had to have his human form killed so that he could reawaken and fully be night breed. But then when I revisited it, it seems like he just is a normal human, but then he gets bitten by one of them. Like it's sort of confusing. I wonder if it ties into the whole prophecy thing that even if he wasn't a, a, a night breed to start with, there was always this sense that it was going to happen for him. Like the dreams that he has. I noticed some of the sound work in this where in the first dream, as he wakes up, you can already hear Baphomet saying, you know, find me, heal me. Like he was always sort of meant for this. I don't want to pick on this movie, but I'm just going to, I'm going to say some things. Hang on. I'm going to put my uh, thumb blades on. There we go. Something that doesn't work for me with this movie is the Danny Elfman score. And especially when I'm watching like the director's cut and you have that same music when Boone and Laurie are having that intimate moment kind of as a dream sequence when he is high on LSD or whatever Decker has given him. That same music is the music that's used when she goes to Midian and is going through and we get to see all of the creatures and just that Danny Elfman. I mean, it just. I'm like, okay, well, I'm waiting for Pee-wee to come out. I'm waiting for Pee-wee's bike to be taken apart by the clowns. And just that nightmare sequence worked a lot better for me than where it is in there. And just the music overall is just a little too present and is way too Elfman for me. Music kicks in, Danny Elfman, what have you got? So I love this score, honestly. I it's weird because it's actually his first bona fide horror movie that he wrote a score for, and I'm I was surprised when I first saw it that it wasn't more scary music. It is much more romantic and lush. I do agree the music over that hallucination scene, reusing that part from later on when Laurie first encounters the breed, is a mistake. There's a couple cases like that. That weird, creepy piano theme that uh, he composes for Decker shows up in a couple other places where it really doesn't fit. And I think part of it is just that I assume Elfman composed for the theatrical cut. And when they lengthened it, they just had to keep taking sections of his score and moving it around to fill in some of the, the gaps, unfortunately. That would make a lot of sense because, yeah, uh, there are things about it I like, but I have this kind of the same problem with Hellraiser where... I do like a lot of the original score, but knowing Clive Barker and sort of knowing his association with bands like Coil, I wish there had been something more kind of creepy and abstract and maybe more experimental because Danny Elfman, like that particular type of sound, it just makes me, it's hard to take it seriously for me. I wonder if part of it for me is seeing it back then. I, Seeing it now with the context of Elfman is a little different. Seeing it then when he'd only done about eight movies before this, I feel like it's a little different. The Elfman sound wasn't quite as crystallized as it is now. I mean, yeah, this is, what, a year north of uh, Batman? So we hadn't had our fill of Elfman at this point. I also first saw it 
probably 96, 97. So by then, I, when I was old enough to have seen it, like I knew who Danny Elfman was and I associated that music definitely with Batman. So it was like, why is this here? I heard a lot more Edward Scissorhands in it this time than Batman, actually. Yes, did that too, definitely. I do love that we got that really bizarre country western version of Skin, the Oingo Boingo song that plays in a couple scenes. It's just so odd. <laughs> I think the other thing that doesn't work for me with this is just that music plus the creature design, because some of the creatures look really cool, and other ones, it's just like, it reminds me of the cantina scene, where it's just like, <laughs> hey, we need something. Put a werewolf mask on this guy. Put devil horns on this guy. I'm just like, okay, you know, because there's some creatures where I'm just like, you just look silly. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm not scared. Like, I would like there to be more monstrous type stuff. It, it reminds me of watching uh, Face Off on Sci-Fi Network, where it's just like, okay, this was probably in the bottom two looks for the week. Fortunately, there's no extent of goofy storytelling that will make this any better than it is. It is exceedingly problematic. It just doesn't come out in an intelligible way for me, either visually or with the story. That's actually something that I find kind of endearing about it. It does have a lot of nightmarish moments, but most of those are related to Decker and the murders. And once you actually get to Midian, it to me, it feels very Jim Henson, sort of like maybe a more adult version of something like Labyrinth, where... There are kind of more fantastical nightbreed who are a little bit friendlier and more cartoonish looking, but I, I definitely get what you mean. I do agree that I, I never really feel like we're supposed to find the nightbreed out and out scary, cool and bizarre, but not really scary. I did find watching some of the scenes as they're fleeing the big massacre that you can see that makeup appliances from one breed have just been kind of stuck on another actor to kind of fill out the, the ranks there. But, you know, knowing makeup effects and kind of following that stuff, I can't help but not see that. And I'll admit, Blu-ray does reveal a few of the application. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Edges and some of the flaws in the makeup, but I still enjoy the creature design most for the most part. I'm a little disappointed that some of the really cool creatures are kind of shuffled in the background. There's that weird guy who has like sets of arms on his neck that you see in the background of a few shots, and I really wanted them to put him out front a little bit more. Things like that that are just like hidden away. And a lot of times you'll have creatures in the front that are just sort of paint on a guy's face. 
am I right in assuming that the Devil Lude and Leroy Gom, or AKA the guy with the arms with the eyeballs that come out and wrap around his neck, and then, for lack of a better term, Devil Guy, they feel like they were added later on. And when I watch the editing, I'm just like, other than the guy with the big underbite that is like the, the drummer, I never see those two with any other breed in the entire thing. They're not in the original drafts of the script, so they might have been added later. I mean, they were in enough to actually have a scene with Laurie, so. Right, and I I was watching the theatrical just going like, okay, are these guys here? Yes, they are. And I remember them on the poster and everything, but it just feels like they don't interact with anybody else. And I think that's kind of the thing, too, is like I never know the rules of Midian. Like once we get there, there's this kind of ceremony and stuff, and we've got the Doug Bradley character, and we have Narcisse, who we've kind of have a little bit more of him uh, when we see him cut off his face. I think him cutting off the the skin around his head and stuff, I love that. I love him holding the clumps of skin and hair out to Boone. All of that stuff with Narcissi, I think, is fantastic. And I love that he becomes this, like, comedic, weird, bisexual-type character once he gets to Midian. Like, he's super scary when he's in the hospital, and then when he gets once he gets to Midian, he's just like, sorry, you know? <laughs> he's so much fun. Uh, he's great. I love him! I absolutely love that character, and I'm glad that he interacts so much in there. I love when he's in the car and all that kind of stuff. When they go, when they break Boone out of jail midway through the movie, it's like, okay, I'm I'm with you. I am so into this stuff. I think you really need a character like that who does, even though he's not human per se, who just feels very warm and humorous and relatable. And he's he's almost kind of this like puckish sort of guide figure. And he's kind of a nice counterpoint to Boone in that Boone joins the breed and he's, he doesn't seem quite sure he still wants to be a part of it. And Narcissus is all the way in. He loves it. He's very happy to be there. I was really expecting more out of Kinski, the, the moon face guy I was talking about earlier. Cause it, he, it feels like him and what's the other guy's name? Paliquin. Paliquin. Yep. They're really strong at points in the film and then they kind of drop out. And especially Kinski just kind of drops out. He's like background for a while. And it's like, I really wanted him to be much more present in the film, but I do have to say they are balancing a lot of characters in this movie. One of the things with the Cabal cut that I really liked is that Peliquin and Kinski, to, for some degree, have extra scenes. That moment in the Cabal cut where, as Midian is falling apart and Peliquin and Kinski are talking, Peliquin's like, you know, I just wanted meat. I didn't want this to happen. If, if I have to bleed for it, fine, I'll bleed for it. I really wish that had been included in the movie. It's such a great scene and not such a nice motivator for him. Yeah, I love Peliquin. And my sort of fantasy wish for Nightbreed is, you know, instead of having this super long version, I wish there could have been more films or even like a spinoff show or something, because there are just so many fascinating characters and even those sort of glimpses of characters that we've been talking about who aren't really shown much or developed. It's like, I want to know more about everyone who lives in Midian. Well, yeah, I think, Tim, you mentioned the X-Men, and this does very much feel like the X-Men and, oh, cool, look at these guys. Like in, I think it's X-Men 3, which I know a lot of people hate. It's not that good, but there are still some interesting parts. Like when they go out to the forest and there's all the evil mutants that are out there. And it's just like, look at all these creatures. I am very fascinated to know what each one of these guys does. And you even have the one guy who's got the uh, quills, very much like um, Shuna Shasti in here, who I 
guess was probably the star of a lot of uh, uh, fanfic, let's say that. I think that's safe to say. And that's the killer that Barker had such grand plans for this to be a series of movies, or at least a trilogy of movies. And you can feel what he's building up in in the story, that he's setting up Ashbury to be the big bad guy of the next one, that Boone and Laurie are going to go off and you know, find more breed and bring them all together. It would have been this incredible epic story. And even in the original novella, it ends on this cliffhanger of, okay, where's this going to go? And he never really followed it up, which always bums me out. And that's what we have the comics for. And I guess now they are supposed to be developing a TV series that's going to expand it. So, well, we can hope. It's such a tragedy that we didn't get to see more of this. The priest character, they give him such a close up. And I was just like, okay, am I supposed to know this guy? Was he in this movie before? And I would go back and watch him like, no, he's not in here before. Why is why is he getting this close up? Why are we getting the shot of him digging his nails into his hands? And it, it just felt like okay, again, like, I just felt like I was missing so much. I was just like, was this in the book? Was there a lot more to this? And I think that was also one of the reasons why when I heard about the Cabal cut, and I was just kind of on the sidelines of this whole thing, I, I would read stories, I would hear about things, and it's just like, okay, Cabal cut, Cabal cut. And I'm like, okay, that's great. I'm glad. I am glad anytime there is footage that has been discarded, that is found again, and is able to be restored, or, you know, if this wasn't Barker's original intention, great, put that stuff in, let him have his cut, or to your point, Sam, great, restore it, put it as deleted scenes, let the fan editors editors have their day with this stuff, I don't care, just make sure that that footage is available someplace. And so when I heard about the Cabal cut, I was just like, oh, cool, maybe this will explain some things like who this Ashbury guy is, but unfortunately, I didn't get that. Ashbury is a bit of a problem in the movie. One, because the actor Malcolm Smith, I don't think really pulls it off. He's very awkward. In the book, there's much more of a backstory where um, Igerman had actually found him cross-dressing and blackmailed him. And there's this whole idea that he is this kind of fountain of repression, that he's so repressed. And that's part of the reason why when he gets to Midian, he does start to gravitate toward the breed because deep down, he kind of does feel a bit of a kinship to them. Igerman is fucking fantastic. I love Charles Hayde. And when he shows up midway through this movie, I was just like, all right, this is great. And he, my God, he is at 11 through this entire performance when he does that. I'll kill you all. (laughs) (laughs) I was so happy. From the moment he walks in his office, you can tell he's just such an arrogant prick. You immediately hate him. It's incredible. He's got that huge picture of himself on the wall. Uh, yeah, that's the best. <laughs> and his constant reference to, pardon me, gentlemen, I have a press conference. Excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> I will say watching this now with current events, this whole idea of, you know, the militarization of the police, that whole scene with where he's boasting about their armory. Boy, that hits home more than it did when I first saw this. Well, there's that weird part where that guy is talking about how one of the guns is very feminine and then hands it over to Decker. And it's just like, all right, this is interesting because Decker played brilliantly by Cronenberg. And I love that he's Philip K. Decker. So kind of mixing the Decker character from Blade Runner with uh, Philip K. Dick, of course, who I know he was a huge fan of him playing it with that lightness and that almost feminine voice that he's just so quiet through there button face or button man i mean that's the scariest creature to me is and i know that that's the point of this movie the scariest creature is the human monster versus the monster monster but my god that mask whoever came up with the design for that needs to get an award 
Yeah, or be checked in somewhere. So I I have to admit, like, as much as I love the larger story, and I love Midian and the Nightbreed, my favorite thing about Nightbreed is Decker, and especially about the film is David Cronenberg, who I think is just so perfect in the role that at times, he kind of makes Craig Sheffer look ridiculous with some of his overacting, especially because he's so... Reading the book, the sense that I got from Decker in the book was this very kind of like Raymond Burr type figure who's very sort of... has that kind of like 1940s, 1950s sense of being kind of like a dad authority figure. Like he has a very sort of assertive, but reassuring presence, at least until you find out he's a psychopath. But here, the way that Cronenberg plays Decker, just like even just thinking about that voice that he uses, where it's, it's really flat. It's like from the moment he's introduced, you're like, uh Oh, (laughs) (laughs) what was he about to get up to? But that mask is so scary. It's amazing casting, too, and that sort of reflects Cronenberg as a director. You'd see his movies like Videodrome and The Fly, and they're disgusting and horrific, and you're like, oh my god, what mind would come up with this? And then you see him in an interview, and he's this very intellectual, soft-spoken, very well-spoken guy, just like Decker. And you really get the feeling of this guy who's in complete control when he's in his Decker form, and then has to let it out every once in a while once he puts the mask on. Uh, Going back to what you were saying about the scene in the armory where they hand him the shotgun, I love the barely disguised contempt that Decker has like, Oh, that's, that's great. Terrific. Wonderful. That even for Decker, all these redneck cops are just like, he's disgusted by them. He, a psychopathic murderer finds them unpleasant and disgusting. It so reminds me of the scene where they're going to go out and hunt the shark and jaws. And you have all those a-holes that are there for the $3,000 bounty and just coming into town and they've got the grenades and things that they're going to try to kill the shark with. And it just becomes this mass hysteria because yeah, I love just all these rednecks are just showing up just like, woohoo, we're going to go out and kill us some monsters. <laughs> going back to Decker for one second. One thing that was in the theatrical cut that's not in the director's cut that I really miss is when they're in the car on the way to Midian and Igerman tries to hand him a pistol and Decker's just like, oh, I wouldn't even know what to do with that which is a wonderful double layer of, oh, I'm just the genteel psychologist. I don't use guns. But of course we know, no, he doesn't use guns. He prefers knives. Surgical knives. I wish there was sort of a sequel or like a follow-up episode or something where he does get to, you know, kill all of those redneck cops. Much as I love Decker, I will say something a little controversial. I kind of wish there was wish there was about 30% less of him in the movie. There are few How s- dare you? Let me explain. Because <laughs> I think there are a few scenes they put in that kind of spoil some of the kind of reveals later. That scene with him in his lair, it's cool looking, it's beautifully shot, but even though we kind of know Decker's up to no good, it does kind of kill the reveal when Laurie sees him when he first pulls off the mask outside of the gates. Right. The other one is that really quick scene of him massacring the uh, desk clerk at the hotel. Because I feel like it would be so much more interesting if we just see him outside and Boone and Lori go in and they discover the massacre. I mean, we already know as soon as they go in, oh, everybody's already dead. I think it kind of kills that reveal as well. And the scene with John Agar in the garage, because again, it, it kind of confuses Decker's motivations. It, it feels like a scene that's put in there just to put him in there a little bit more. I think you could have cut directly from him fleeing Midian, going right to the police station and calling in Joyce, and it would have worked fine. That scene with John Agar... 
I mean, I know for sure that that was just added in to try to explain his motivation, but I think it muddies the waters rather than actually clears it up. I mean, you're talking, Sam, about breeders and stuff, and I'm just like, I guess he only kills families, or that's like his thing when he's showing Boone the photos. Look at all of these families. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Families that are dead, and I'm just like, okay, it's kind of like... I don't know, like Uncle Charlie from Shadow of a Doubt. Like he's, you know, if he's rip off the fronts of the houses, you just see pigs living there and he wants to go in and just clean up all of these families and he hates families or something. But then that he can just murder individual people without any real motivation. I'm like, well, that kind of undoes that. And then him, it's a little too much. I do agree. I love seeing Cronenberg in here, but it's a little too much to have that scene. And I, I it does really feel like we're just going to slap this in here and try to clear up some stuff that maybe the script left a little muddied. Although the breeders comment does bring up an interesting thing that breeders is also sort of uh, slang in the LGBTQIA community for heterosexual. So it makes you wonder, are they sort of painting Decker as gay as well? And that whole suggestion of there's this weird kind of latent homoerotic uh, tension between him and Boone throughout a lot of the movie, I feel like the whole, you know, let you know, let's dance one last time doctor thing at the end. Um, especially in the cabal cut where they, you know, he actually hugs him when he once he reveals that he may have killed all these people. There's a lot of little hints of this kind of relationship or this, at least this tension between the two of them. I definitely thought the first time I saw this that the breeder's comment was meant to refer to heterosexual people who have children. I like that he doesn't really beat you over the head with those references. And I, I'm sure there are plenty of a certain type of horror fan that I'm not going to rant about too much, but plenty of those who have seen this film and don't get any gay subtext whatsoever and wouldn't want any. So I, I like that he, that Clive Barker is kind of maybe a little bit more subtle with it, but I, I do think there is something really interesting in the way that Boone and Decker kind of parallel each other, especially in the book, how there is that kind of revulsion when it comes to heterosexual sex. That hug you're talking about, when we have that last close-up of Boone and Decker together before he shoves them down into the pit, I mean, they are kissing distance. And I was almost surprised that Decker didn't lay one on him. Maybe just a few years later, he would have. I mean, I'm, I'm guessing you've seen all of those wonderful pictures taken from like various film festivals where David Cronenberg kisses Viggo Mortensen. No, I haven't seen oh those. Oh, I haven't seen like, that either. That's awesome. They're amazing. There, there are like a dozen of them. 
And so it's not it's not just like from one film festival. They love each other, and I guess sometimes kiss each other on the lips in front of press photographers. <laughs> hey, after that fight in Eastern Promises, I would have kissed him on the lips, maybe more. <laughs> I know, absolutely. They keep talking about the law at one point, and uh, Peliquin keeps bringing up the law, and I guess it's you know the law of the Nightbreed. But every time he brought up the law and the way that the characters are designed, I kept thinking of the Island of Doctor Moreau. I was thinking the same thing, the Sayer of the Law there, yeah. And then of course I hear that Oingo Boingo song in my head. That has to be like a, a conscious direct reference. I mean, there definitely are, even though there's it doesn't have that sort of mad scientist creating these creatures angle. I think there are a lot of similarities between Island and Nightbreed. I was also seeing a lot of Orpheus in this, as far as uh, Lori going into the underworld and trying to save Boone and the way she's dragging him out of the underworld. It really felt a lot like that to me. I don't know if it's just because I watched Cocteau's Orpheus over the weekend, but I, I really was picking up on something like that. One of my favorite things about Clive Barker overall is I think he's particularly adept at weaving myth and fairy tale and folklore and even past horror tropes into his work in a way that feels really original. Like I know there are more maybe mainstream writers like Neil Gaiman who do that where it just feels too obvious and sort of cringy to me, but I think when Clive Barker does it, it feels very kind of elegant and I, I don't know, that that's always been one of the things about this movie that I can't totally wrap my brain around is that that Lori and Boone relationship, which feels like it's not like like we talked about in the beginning of the episode, in a lot of ways it feels like it's not given enough time to develop so that we're not as invested in why she loves him so much or why they need to be together. But I think by the end or by the halfway point, I can't help but feel invested. And some of it might be because of that Orpheus nod. Well, it's nice too that they name the place Midian and going through like biblical history of Midian and all this stuff. And I know Moses and they call uh, the Doug Bradley character at one point. They're like, hey, Moses. And Moses lived in Midian for what was it, 40 years, I think, like after uh, they escaped the Pharaoh and he ends up in Midian. But then there's also more the story of uh, Gideon. Uh, who slayed a lot of the Midian folks, and he was doing that because they were worshipping Baal. I was very surprised that they went with Baphomet in this, or Baphomet, rather than Baal, but it was nice that he's able to mix those together in here and have those references, and if you get it, you get it. If you don't, you don't. And then on a different level, you can almost see Boone as sort of Moses himself, and Baphomet as sort of the burning bush, sending him off on his quest. Me, being one who loves to grasp at straws, the song Johnny Get Angry, which Laurie sings in like a deleted scene that eventually got put back in, and the crowd, man, they fucking love that song. <laughs> they, they are so happy with her singing that. But Johnny Get Angry is just an, a weird, weird song. I don't know if you guys are familiar with it, but just this whole, like, you know, get angry when people come up and try to talk to me, and this whole refrain of, 
I want a brave man. I want a caveman. Like she wants somebody to basically take her by the hair and drag her off someplace. And just like her, I think that's definitely a song that she is singing to Boone. You know, I want you to be this muscle man that's going to just drag me away and have his way with me. But he is not doing that for her. I think it might have worked more in the original iteration of the movie. In the Cabal Cut, you see that scene where Boone's at the window and she's trying to get him, you know, come on over over here. Or you're When you're here, you're not really here. And I think their relationship, if that scene had been left in there, which I think is probably one of the most important scenes that they dropped out of their relationship, would have established that, you know, she's really into this and Boone's just sort of halfway into the relationship. And she wants him to show some passion. She wants to see that he's invested in this relationship. She wants to see, you know, him get fired up. As part of that song seems to be about this woman trying to make this guy jealous to see, you know, are you going to fight for me? Are you interested in me? And that's kind of how I took it. And it also speaks to this idea of, yes, Boone, be this monster. If this monster is in there and that's you, be the monster. Just, you know, let it out. I have to ask a, a question about one monster. What is Simon Bamford doing in this movie? The guy, the little guy with the dog? Onaka. Yeah. What's Onaka's deal? I don't know. I mean, in the, some of the extended books, they imply that he was somehow tattooed by angels, and, and that's one of the reasons he's a breed. But I kind of like this idea that, yeah, he looks totally normal until you get him out in the sun, and then he explodes. That some of the breed, some of their differences aren't necessarily physical, but it's something else inside or something, some other part of them. Yeah, that really reminds me of especially some of the later kind of versions of the X-Men where – some of them seem to not really have any powers or seem to be totally normal. And then it's like, surprise, they have this one weird, useless thing that makes them a mutant. Two side notes about Simon Bamford. He also played one of the Cenobites in the Hellraiser movies. Uh, the I think the one with the, the Butterball one, where it was basically glued into that suit. So he was probably really happy to play a monster that didn't require makeup. And I don't know if you've seen that, you know, You're So Cool Brewster documentary about Fright Night. But man, he does an amazing Ronnie McDowell because he plays Peter Vincent in that. If they ever needed somebody else to play Peter Vincent, he's the guy. No, I haven't seen that one yet. That sounds awesome. But it's also crazy to think of Butterball being Peter Vincent. <laughs> <laughs> I know. And I love that for Butterball, they cast the tiniest guy possible. <laughs> I mean, maybe he was the only person who could fit in the suit. I think that this is probably a very obvious question, but I don't know the answer to it. When Boone gets taken to jail, why do they keep calling him a cannibal? Because they've uh, that scene where he's like licking the blood in the hotel room, I assume they saw him like with the blood all over his mouth and assumed that he was eating people. All right. I was just so confused by that. Oh, I never understood that either. I just assumed that maybe there was evidence somewhere that Decker planted that just got kind of was in a scene that got cut out. But that that makes sense. Because we even see him actually taking some of the blood and putting it in his mouth and being all yummy about it. So. Yeah, you're right about that reveal when it comes to the people that are dead in the hotel. I think that would have been much more effective had we not known that Decker was behind that whatsoever. Oh, and I love the House of Cards. I assume it's something Decker set up. It's such a weird idea that in the middle of this chaos, he's going to create this tiny little thing of order, just perfectly balanced there, waiting for somebody to find it. Yeah, it is such a Decker detail. 
Well, and then also that Boone has a card stuck to his chest when he gets knifed by Decker at the end. I don't know where that card comes from, but he's got a card on his chest. And after Lori takes the knife out, he still has that card stuck to his chest with blood for the longest time. And it's like, where did this come from? I think the card comes from earlier in the movie when uh, Lori is chasing the what she thinks is Boone around. He passes this that breed that's like dealing tarot cards. I think it's supposed to be that table that he smacks into. Because, like, Decker throws him onto a table and the card gets speared from there. Being the Ace of Hearts, I actually did take a look and apparently in tarot, it's like a breakthrough in feelings, declaration of love, or happiness or prosperity of people in a home. And considering the card is destroyed by the knife, maybe it's sort of a metaphor for Midian and the happiness and prosperity of all of them being destroyed. The direct parallel is the Ace of Cups, which also has all of these tie-ins to, like, Grail mythology and... It's just sort of like the ultimate synthesis of the cup suit. So it's all about love and feelings and that that can even have like a religious or spiritual undertone. So it certainly makes sense. I love that fake boon that they have. He reminds me, and I've criticized the creature design uh, a few times, but he reminds me of something that like a Charles Burns would have drawn. He just, that little face down at the bottom of his head, just, it looks so creepy and so cool. And I love that he looks completely normal, you know, t-shirt, blue jeans, but then he has that just incredible face when he turns around. Yeah, he's almost snake-like. It almost reminds me of something from Lair of the White Worm. I actually wouldn't mind talking a little bit about Ann Bobby as Laurie because I really like love her performance in this, I, especially because and this is one reason I almost wish they didn't have that scene of Boone getting his initiation, because I love in the original story. Once Boone's gone for a while, it's Laurie's story for a good chunk of the, the narrative. And I, I love that we follow her. I love that when she encounters the breed, she's the first one who kind of has this natural empathy. She immediately just treats them as people, not as these weird creatures. And I love that the Cabal cut, one of the biggest things I love is that they restore her relationship with Babette. But also throughout the course of the movie, we see these little hints of Lori starting to feel this kinship with the breed. The scene where she's walking through the center of Midian, we get these close-ups of her looking around, not with horror, but also with kind of awe and like, oh my God, this is cool. This is amazing. Or that scene with Peliquin near the end where she's discussing the prophecy. And unfortunately, in the director's cut and the theatrical version, it's cut off. But there's that. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli. I guess. Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Great moment where Pelican, Pelican is like, you know, go up with your kind. And she's like, those aren't my kind. Like, fine, whatever. Die with us. That she's starting to disassociate herself with humanity. And especially the scene in the jail cell where Boone even says, while you're in the cabal cut, wow, you sound like you're starting to like the bridge. He's like, well, maybe I am. That jail scene in the cabal cut, I think that scene really should have been restored to its full length in, in 
both the director's cut and the theatrical one, it's so quick. And I feel like it's really such a, a centerpiece of the movie in terms of their relationship. She gives such a compelling performance that it goes a really long way into making Lori more well-rounded as a character and into making their relationship more believable because you really like her and you want her to succeed and you want her to have a happy ending. And if that means being with Boone, fine. But I love that she is given time, especially in the book, but I think to a degree in the movie to sort of establish who she is. And like you're saying, the fact that she can have a relationship with the night breed of her own. Like, I think that's so important. It gives her something other than chasing a man for the whole story. She has agency, yeah, she, she which does, normally yeah. that character would just be like, oh my god, my, my boyfriend's turned into a monster. She rescues Boone to some degree. She rescues Babette twice. Uh, she's chased by Decker a few times, but she never doesn't feel like she always falls into the damsel in distress role. And also, I gotta say, and I might be in the minority in this, I like the song number. It goes on a little long, but I really like her singing in it. She's got some pipes, man. She really sells that song. And she's really singing it. As silly as maybe it is, I think it also gives her character a little more dimension because she's not just this kind of sad girl on a mission to save her boyfriend. She she has wants and needs that are maybe suggested a little bit more directly in the book, but I think that kind of weirdly come, as we were talking about earlier, weirdly come through with that performance. I think it's funny that in the director's cut, we finally get to find out what Boone and Lori's professions are. We don't even know that in the theatrical one. They're just people who just walk around and do stuff. At one point, I thought this was going to become like a Romeo and Juliet thing where Boone belongs to the breed. He even says, I belong to the breed now. It's like, okay, that's cool. And I thought like she would try to be the human that brings him back or something, even though he's dead. But I thought for sure she would just not be able to handle him as who he is. And I was so glad, especially even when we see a couple scenes of him with his cabal face, and it's like, you better tone that down. She's not going to like you, is what Narcisse says. And he changes back. But then finally, when he shows his true face to her, she's accepting of it. There's something that I think is spent a little more time on in the book, which is kind of this idea that she doesn't fit in either. And I think the book, at least in the beginning is sort of critical of her character. And it kind of speculates like, why would a normal woman want to be with somebody like Boone, who's really fucked up and has all these problems. You get the sense at first that it's a little bit judgy of her and that maybe she just is finding somebody that she can fix. But I think it moves on from there and it allows her to have agency and to be a strong character who is also a really kind of loving, empathetic character. While at the same time, it's like you see all of these other humans and how either terrible they are, how stupid they are. And so she just feels like I I could never imagine an ending where she says to Boone, like, okay, let's go back to the suburbs. Everything's going to be fine. Speaking of other humans, uh, I'd like to bring up Inspector Joyce, a character who it kind of feels incomplete in both the theatrical and uh, director's cuts. And I think it's interesting how, if you look at it, um, those cuts compared to the cabal cut, you see 
two different paths for the character that go interesting ways based on his actions. In the theatrical and director's cut, the fact that he gets killed by Decker almost feels like sort of a, for the audience, a punishment for him not saving Onaka. This idea that he's the cop who sees police abuse and just doesn't do anything. He just steps away and kind of backs off and lets it happen. And so we kind of want to see him punished. And then the Cabal cut, we get a lot more scenes of him really pushing back against the other police and finally going in and rescuing Babette and kind of redeeming himself and is allowed to survive in that version. Yeah, I think he's a great character and does not have nearly enough screen time. But again, they are balancing so many different characters in here. But adding a few seconds to him to let him have that moment of redemption, I think would have been wonderful. That is definitely like if I had to pick a main problem, that sort of double-sided thing where on one hand you could have a much more like tightly knit film, a more cohesive plot if you had less characters. But there's also the opposite side. Like I was saying earlier where it's like, I just want more time with all of these characters. It also might've balanced the, I saw some critics who were very angry that the movie seemed to portray all the humans as all, oh, they're all just bad people. So maybe it would have given a little bit more shades of gray hashtag, not all naturals, not all breeders. <laughs> I mean, it occurred to me that Joyce doesn't even get an introductory scene. The first time we see him is just walking along with Decker in the hospital. Cause we lose that whole uh, crime scene intro to him that would have kind of set up his character. He just kind of shows up and he just kind of exits. And I remember when I first saw this, when Decker kills him, I'm like, that didn't really kill him. Did it? It looked like he just kind of slashed him in the shoulder so then seeing the cabal cut where that's the case and and joyce just runs off i'm like aha aha i was right (laughs) i i do understand why there's some problems with that second act because if he saves babette and laurie saves babette babette's just kind of being handed off like a relay race everyone's just kind of handing her over to different people yeah yeah babette really uh, i think is like she and Rachel need to need to get their shit together. Keep that kid on a leash, especially when she's in her cat form. Oh, I do remember a lot of the ushers making a special trip into the theater when um, Babette's mom would do her little uh, act in the jail cell there or in the, the, the prison. Yeah, we were 18, 19. What are you going to do? Something that was revealed by the Cabal cut and thankfully fixed partially in the director's cut that some of the performances have been dubbed over to varying degrees of success. I'm so happy that we finally get to hear Doug Bradley as Lylesburg. I mean, how could you cast Doug Bradley with that amazing voice and then dub him over with some random German actor? Because it's Lylesburg is so much more interesting to me with with Bradley's voice coming out of him. Yeah, it's like anytime you see Christopher Lee in a Euro horror movie and someone else's voice comes out of his mouth, it's like the man spoke like 10 languages. Why couldn't he be recording himself? Like, it just it feels like a crime. If you've ever heard his spine chiller audio books where he's narrating all these classic horror stories, they're just amazing, that incredible voice. I did notice that there's at least one scene in the director's cut where they still use the German voice, that scene where he's talking about how Baphomet is going to blow everything up. It's still the German accent. It bugs the hell out of me. The other thing is that uh, Catherine Chevalier, who plays uh, Rachel, was dubbed over. I mean, she has, I think, an American accent. And they got this woman with this great, uh, much older timber to her voice and that accent that I think actually works even better than the original actress's voice for the most part. But then in the director's cut, you have that last scene and you can hear original voice. And it's really odd. With When it comes to her, like because I don't know her the same way I know Doug Bradley... I'm just so used to that other accent. That's just how I picture the character, like automatically having that. 
The only other thing I've seen her in is the second uh, Hellraiser movie where she plays one of the character's mothers in a flashback. And then that's when I first heard, oh, that's not her voice in Nightbreed. Oh, wow. Well, not knowing who was who the first time I watched this, I thought for sure that Doug Bradley was the Peliquin character and that somebody else was the Lylesburg character just because Peliquin has that really deep voice. And I'm just like, oh, that sounds very, very Hellraiser, very pinhead. And I really expected that. And then when I looked him up, I was like, what? Really? And then, you know, in 1989 or whenever I'm looking this up the first time, I'm just like, wait a second. Um, Doug Bradley has a German accent? This is really strange. (laughs) (laughs) And the reason why is so stupid. The production company wouldn't pay for him to come to L.A. to do the redubbing sessions. So they just figured, ah, we'll just get somebody else. It doesn't matter. Tim, you were telling us this a couple days ago that Peliquin, even though he's not Doug Bradley, is still from Hellraiser. He's Oliver Parker. Yeah, he's one of the moving men in the opening scene who's uh, leering at uh, the wife. And he became a director and uh, actually put... Uh, Doug Bradley into one of his movies. I think it was uh, An Ideal Husband. And he directed that great Othello with Lawrence Fishburne. He's really good. Also, the guy who plays Kinski, Nicholas Vince, was the chatterer sent a bite from Hellraiser. So it's kind of a Hellraiser reunion here. If you're going to get a bunch of people to wear makeup, you might as well get people who have already worn it before, so they're kind of used to the rigors of it. All right, we're going to take a break and play an interview with Charles Hayde, and we'll be back with that right after these brief messages. There's a new podcast on the block. Video Vortex Podcast. Listen in as Bucks, Ben, and Steph have a conversational discussion and talk about how much films affect us as people and as a society. Yes, we do all of those things. Along with guests from the industry and beyond. And get sucked into the video vortex. Don't say sucked on a promo. <sighs> we most definitely are making up on the spot. Find us on assorted apps and at videovortex.podbean.com. Hey. Hello. A little bit of introduction. We are the Film Room Cast. I am Albert Wiltfong. I am Austin Shin. And we talk about movies. We just we talk about anything we like to our heart's content. We talk about everything from the very best films ever made to the very worst. <laughs> and we have scraped the bottom of the barrel on the worst ones. It's it's not what you'd expect either. No, no, no. We are the uh, kind of cast for which Birdemic is a step above some of the stuff we've covered. I hesitate to say this, but the room is a little bit higher than some of the stuff we've covered. But on the other hand, we've also covered stuff like The Godfather, Magnolia. We've covered the very best cinema has to offer, the very worst, so don't try to pigeonhole us. And of course, we like to talk about the hot-button topics. We try not to get too political, but we take a political stance. We're people, we have to. We have... A huge backlog. We've been running for about three years. We've got casts on the MPAA. We've got stuff on, like, adaptations. We've got stuff on movies that have been turned into TV shows. A couple of nostalgia retrospectives looking at things like movie theaters and video stores. Proud of those ones. And we've even got at least one cast on a movie that doesn't exist, so... <laughs> got that. Oh yeah, with uh, with more to come. So that's us. That's us. Uh, so yeah, listen to the film room. 
have to credit the backtrack. It is from John Carpenter's album Lost Themes. I suggest picking up that album. It's a really great album. But yeah, you can find us at thefilmroom.podbean.com or on iTunes if you prefer to subscribe there. We're out there. Yeah. Thank you all. Hope you listen to us and good night. All right. I'm Dame Judi Dench, Her Royal Highness, the Honorary Queen of the British Isles, parts of the Caribbean, and I have a scarf consortium in the basement of Harrods. I'm just here to tell you all about this wonderful, relatively new podcast from the After Movie Diner. There's movie discussion, interviews with independent film directors, music, and abject silliness. First thing, every Monday, just in time for your sweaty and stressful commute. Or like me, maybe you're sprawled seductively on a chaise long waiting for a really good breakfast. Go to amdpodcast.blogspot.com or search for After Movie Diner on iTunes, TalkShoe, Podbean, or Facebook and get that dose of goodness that you've been looking for. For all your sleepless nights, long commutes, and lonely weekends, maybe spent dressed in a tutu playing checkers with a machine eating Nutella straight from the jar. It's the After Movie Diner podcast, filled with all the beam. Do you mind if I asked you a little bit about your uh, stint, very brief stint, on Barney Miller? That was a really interesting situation because I had done the pilot, the Barney Miller thing that you saw. Isn't that interesting that you that they put it on? I did I did that with me in it. I mean, because Max, you know, played the played the part. Max Gale played the part for then on then on. Was it his name Wojciechowicz or something like that? Yeah, yeah. You were Kaczynski and he was Wojciechowicz. Yeah, so they were, you know, uh, right, right there being racist about Polish people. Oh, anyway, no, I took it, uh, this guy Danny Arnold, I guess, was the producer. And I got, uh, I did the pilot. And then I was directing a play back in New York. And I was uh, I was supposed to direct a play back in New York. I was committed to the play because the pilot got a late pickup. So it got a late pickup. And I had already committed to the play. And I told Danny Arnold that I couldn't do it. And he was furious. Absolutely furious, and uh, and it was, it was beyond my pickup time, so there was no legal way they could pick, you know pick me up, and so I mean it would have been it would have been nice I guess that I went on to do Hill Street and play another cop anyway, but uh, I was much happier being on Hill Street than I would have been on Barney Miller. I'll tell you that, you know I mean just in terms of the the, the shall we say the the material, I think uh, it, it was a, a kind of a, a fate so to speak, you know, that that particular thing happened. I remember being upset because, you know, Danny was very, uh, <laughs> you know, that old term, you'll never work in this town again. Right. He used it. <laughs> he said, you'll never work in this town again. And I was just, you know, I was young. I was upset. I was upset. I thought, oh my God, now what have I done? You know, but I had this play. And of course the play fell apart for some reason. It was in Brooklyn. It was a ill-conceived uh, production anyway. So that fell apart. And I remember coming back to Los Angeles is just, you know, no job. And uh, here I was, but things picked up after that. So it was fine. What is it about you where you have played so many police characters? I think probably my size, you know, and probably my sort of manner when I and I can put that vibe on sometimes. I, I think that's probably what it is. I always thought of the characters as human first and police second. But it's interesting. Yeah. I know, and all of a sudden in Nightbreed, you're right. Uh, Eigerman. You know, that's interesting. Yeah. And that was just, and that came from Mark Frost. Mark Frost had been a, uh, um, a guy who I uh, had worked with before also. So people just sort of put me into that slot, you know? What was that experience like for you being Captain Ackerman? <laughs> because it was the nature of that particular film, 
certain senses, you kind of didn't know exactly what was happening all the time. Let's say that it was, it was such a, a, a complex film and we were filming it. I couldn't tell. I mean, I didn't know. Certainly it, it had about, you know, four, three or four levels. And I think that's probably why it's sort of a, uh, you know, it has the status it has, but it was just, for me, it was just so sort of, uh, I don't know. It, I don't know if it was confusing, but it certainly was uh, an interesting experience in terms of, you know, the levels of what that was, right? You know, a land here and a land there, you know what I mean? Have you ever gotten a chance to play that high before? Just like your performance, you were up to 11 so often in that. Well, but that's what he, that's what the uh, d- director apparently wanted. And he, I think he, I think he wanted that from everybody. You know, he's a pretty crazy guy, man. That guy, you know, uh, as we've, you know, uh, brilliant guy. But man, that was it was pretty nuts working on it. I got to tell you, he was just he had so many of these ideas and the and the design and the whole thing. It was sort of pretty crazy. You couldn't sort of even keep up with it. You know what I mean? Does that make make sense? That it was such a, a fantasy and an illusion and all that. It was so like wow. You know what? What? What's going to happen next? And yes, I know I was on that level, but I think that level was going kind of all the time, if you know what I mean, in the film. So it was all like, wow, just you know, Clive Barker, crazy, crazy. And uh, you know, I didn't know the depth. I mean, I didn't. I, I wasn't familiar. That's familiar with Clive. I got familiar with him some of his work after that. But he could, I don't even know what he's doing now. I saw him at a some kind of a, a, a get together years ago. He was all pumped up on steroids. You know. I mean, he was like, I don't know what was, I don't have no idea what was going on with him. It, it was, he was pretty crazy. I think I, that was kind of the, the word, you know, brilliant in his vision, but highly in my, my estimation, at least the last time I saw him, highly sort of twisted kind of guy. You know what I mean? Has he changed? Has he died? What has he done? What's going on? I don't even know. He had some really bad medical problems a few years ago, from what I understand. He went in for dental procedure and went into a coma, and yeah, he had like some sort of toxic shock. I mean, you wouldn't even recognize him today. Yeah, very. Anyway, when I saw him, it was very strange. He sort of, I think he sort of recognized me, but didn't. You know what I mean? Anyway, that was an odd, odd thing a few years ago. Were you part of that? Did you? Were you? Did you know about that sort of weird little get together at some point? They reissued the film and put it out and all that. Anyway, I, I followed from way from the sidelines, you know, it's like, again, it was such a strange film to work on. And then a strange occurrence after that. And he was such a strange guy. It was like, okay, I just made the choice to sort of, but I, I mean, I realized that there was some kind of a, a an inference to sort of some kind of, it, they called the guy Eigerman. So that had something to do with some kind of uh, Nazi uh, inference, right? Police, Nazi brown shirt kind of the thing that I wore and all that. So I I made, I think I got myself with the mustache, probably uh, an interesting choice to sort of, you know, that was, uh, and, and the hair cut the way it was and all that. I sort of tried to look a little bit, a little bit like a stormtrooper. I, I mean, that was just, uh, again, uh, a character choice on my part. Nobody really said that to me, but, uh, and I, I think I had a gold tooth in my mouth. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, I, I always, I used to go sort of all the way with my characters. You worked against David Cronenberg quite a bit in that one, and I was curious how that was to work with him. David is such a, a fa- you know, David and I, in many ways, uh, had a very interesting relationship because uh, we, we sort of took to each other right away. I think we both saw ourselves kind of like, what are we doing here? If that makes sense. And uh, we used to hang out. I think that he probably has something to do with my becoming a director. And I'll tell you the story. 
he was a big racing enthusiast, which he always always was. And there was some racing going in 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 England, and so he went up one time to a track. And when we went up to the track, we went by this place on the uh, Avon River. You could take a ferry from one river to another, and so we decided to get one of these these you know long little ferry boats, right? You could rent them and go through the locks and go from you know. Uh, the Thames to, to Stratford, Stratford on Avon. So we decided we would do that. <laughs> so we got in this thing. It was on a weekend. Took this trip. I remember going along, along with him. But I remember one night he and I got into our wine and cigars, I believe it was, and we sat there. And he had his uh, notes and stuff with him. And he at one point turned to me and he said, "Do you think a typewriter would take a shit? Would it shit numbers?" Now, if you look at the piece that he did on Burroughs, I believe it was. That was that was one of the things that was in the movie, in the fantasies. So uh, that was a very strange, strange thing. The most interesting thing he said to me at one point is he said, and I'll never forget this. We're talking about you know careers and things like that, and he said, well, why don't you try directing? He's got a great imagination. He said, I mean, anybody can direct. Look at me. <laughs> I'll never forget that coming from David Cronenberg. It was like, yeah, yeah, okay, Dave. And, but I remember slightly uh, after that, I remember being in the uh, in Pinebrook Studios, and there's a big uh, above the entrance to the dining room. There's a picture of from Lawrence of Arabia with uh, uh, David Lean and uh, O'Toole, and a uh, very interesting black and white picture. And I looked up at that, and I thought, you know, and I referenced back to Lawrence of Arabia, which I had seen when I was like 18 or something. And I somewhere deep in my soul, I said, that's what I want to do. And I came back and I, um, I had the opportunity because I was working with Stephen Bochco that I could sort of observe on shows. So I went back and started that. And I decided I was going to become a director. And I did. And I directed uh, Doogie Howser was the first thing I ever did. Bochco turned to me after that. He said, you're going to work. I said, good. And I was off and running. My agent was not crazy about that because I was a working actor and working a great deal. But uh, I just I turned that corner. I, I also saw that acting was, you know, was was terrific, but acting was all, to me, somehow, there was a bit of risk in it because you never knew where your next job was coming from. And, of course, I, I don't know why I thought that, I, that it would be better with directing, but somehow it turned out quite well for me. I know over the years you directed a lot of Criminal Minds, but were you in front of the camera for that one as well? Uh, in Criminal Minds, I did some kind of a silly thing. I mean, I have to, in retrospect, I have a whole, you know, I have a whole... I don't even know how to describe this. I have a, would it be calling biting the hand that feeds you? Maybe that's what it is. But it has to do with the fact that I was very good at creating a lot of the sort of mayhem. You talked about mayhem before, but in my work, I noticed that I was very, very good at chases and things and running and blah, blah, blah. And I, have, I was very good with action. And a lot of the action and sort of things like that are quite violent. And I remember after a while becoming very, at the end of my career, really maybe about with five years ago, whenever I stopped, I became very disenchanted with the violence. And uh, I remember just particularly one day there, some one of the producers said, can you make the guy who's who's burning in the warehouse scream a little louder? I, I came home and I looked at the poster of my wall of Godsville that I, I produced when I was 21. And I said, I'm out. And that was the, the beginning of my retirement, honestly. Well, are you actually retired? I hung, I'm writing, but I mean, I hung it up. I, 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 I sort of got off the floor, as, as you would call it, uh, about six years ago. 
I mean, I'm seven. I just turned seventy-seven. So yeah, I mean, I'm done with that. I've got to. I've got to still have a company. I'm still working on a, on a pretty really exciting project. I had a, I had a relationship with ITV International for some reality stuff, and that all fell apart because of the COVID thing. We were going to go to the South Pacific and look at uh, uh, sustainable fishing among all the tribes and people that are down there. You know, you know this guy who's called the Shark Man down in New Zealand, and we didn't do that. Like everybody else, I've been sitting on my ass here. Mr. Haid, thank you so much. It is always a pleasure talking with Mr. you. Mr. Yeah, you know, but I mean, I used to be calling Mr. Haid. You can call me Charlie anytime you want. All right. Well, thank you, Charlie. I appreciate it. And saying Mr. Haid was my father. His karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Hi-ya! And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams... Thanks for everything, Mom and Dad. ...will always be worth it. Apply today at PenFed.org savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. PenFed's got great rates for everyone. All right, we are back, and we're talking about Nightbreed and uh, so many cuts, so many cuts of this movie that I was so confused trying to figure out what I was watching the first <laughs> when I rewatched it the other day. When the note about Mark Miller came up on screen, I was just like, "Oh, I just watched the wrong version." <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, watching this, uh, I suddenly was inspired. I kind of want to put together my own cut, taking out some of those extra Decker scenes and trying to get it a little closer to the script in the original novella. I don't know if I'll bother with it because that's a long and involved process, but it might be kind of fun. I am very curious if there have been a lot of uh, fan edits of this. There was the Dr. Saperstein uh, integrated cut, I think is what he called it, though I am not sure when he made that because all of the stuff that's in his version seems to be either in the director's version or in the Cabal cut and in better form. It looks like he just took the director's cut, took the deleted scenes that were on the direct in the director's cut set and just stuck them in the movie. And not even with much finesse. I mean, the, the flashback to the persecution of the breed, it's all of the takes just kind of thrown in there with different music over it. I don't know why in that cut there. Now there's this weird rock music soundtrack to the second scene with uh, Lori and Cheryl Ann the, the morning after when she's after she has a hangover that almost drowns out the the dialogue. I, a lot of the sound choices I thought were really weird in that cut. I wasn't a huge fan of it. Yeah, I have to agree. Although I, I think you already know my feelings on on this subject. And isn't Doctor Saperstein from Rosemary's Baby? Oh God, you're he right. Is, wow. Yeah, yeah. Doctor Saperstein. Um, he was very helpful. Not the character from the, uh, Rosemary's no, Baby. the actual Dr. Saperstein. <laughs> but the fan editor known as Dr. Saperstein, he had put together a really good version of Exorcist 2 at one point. So that was a, a good way. And he also, more than anything, he collected a bunch of the extras. So it was like, okay, cool. So I was able to see a bunch of interviews and things, and that really helped out when it came to the Exorcist 2 episode. 
which I wish we could do again. <laughs> oh, God, that movie. And again and again and again, just because it was so much fun. <laughs> uh, if I could take David's enthusiasm about that movie and bottle it, I would, I would absolutely do that I in know. a heartbeat. The world needs that in 2020. I can't wait to show that to my wife. She hasn't seen the second one yet. We've watched the first one, the third one, but not the second one. So, Oh, good Lord. Oh, I love it. <laughs> She's in for yeah. a treat. So I did find the integrated extended cut was from 2016. So I think that is before the Cabal cut possibly came out. Is that right? Uh, that sounds about right. I know there was a very limited Blu-ray run of the Cabal cut, which I unfortunately I was too slow to actually uh, grab. I wish I had because, man, I'd like to own that. Well, and then it sounds like when they found all that extra footage, listening to the um, audio commentary, which won a Rondo Award, by the way, they said that they had 30 days to put together the director's cut, or it might have been 30 days to put together the Cabal cut. Whatever it was, it was just too short, and I think that's why we see those weird things. Like the, that um, scene with uh, Shauna Shassi at the end when she is throwing her quills out at the guys in the Cabal cut, it is really strange, just the way that the music will rise and fall with the sound effects, and then it'll change to different music or no music. It's just like, all right, this this is very weird, and there was obviously something else that was going on here, but they threw it in the way that they threw it in. I was like, why didn't you just use this from the regular version? I always look at the Cabal cut as almost like an assembly cut or a work print. It, I don't think it's, it's not meant to be the finished version. So you get a lot of repetition, a lot of things that just don't edit well. And it did make me appreciate what uh, Goldblatt and the other uh, editor, I think it was Richard Marden, I think his name was, uh, did in terms of putting things together. One thing that the director's cut did that confuses the hell out of me, I cannot figure out why, the scene where Boone has been arrested and he's thrown in the cell for Igerman to beat the shit out of him, the first five or six shots have been horizontally flipped. You can see that Igerman's badge is on the wrong side and the cell geography is completely wrong. And I have no idea why. I was trying to figure out if there was a continuity problem when they brought him into the cell and they were trying to make it look like he was facing the right way. But it just doesn't make sense. It drives me nuts every time I see it because it's fine in the theatrical cut. I don't know why they flipped that. That's really weird. And... Now that you've said that, I'm not going to be able to unsee it. I apologize. That's <laughs> <No>, okay. <laughs> I also really miss that moment from the theatrical cut when Boone unleashes the berserkers and has that, yeah, go get them, boys. It's such a wonderful light moment. I really wish that was still in there. I do really love the theatrical cut. I, I think maybe because it's just the only one that you could see for so many years. Flaws and all, it's kind of burned into my mind, yeah, and I've I've grown to look past those flaws. The director's cut, I do think, is my preferred one now, but there are definitely things I love in that original cut. Have some fun keeping track of Boone's jacket. How many times he loses it, and how many times it mysteriously reappears on him. That sounds like a drinking game. <laughs> no, no, a drinking game <laughs> would be to take a shot any time you hear the word Boone in the movie. You'd be dead in the oh, first God. half hour, but... <laughs> you would be dead. <laughs> While I was watching it, I was like, oh, my God, they haven't said Midian for 10 minutes. <laughs> yeah, it does get a little <laughs> – the dialogue does get a little bit repetitive. It's not quite as bad as the whole Michael thing in The Lost Boys, but it's still up there. Oh, my God. The, did the some, Michael cut. I don't know if it still exists, but I really like – I don't have the patience to do it myself, but I love when people do those kind of compilation videos somebody definitely did a michael one for the lost boys 
that it was just like two minutes of clips of people saying, Michael, Michael, Michael. <laughs> Michael, 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 Michael. And somebody else did a compilation that's been taken down for a, for years now, but if anyone ever recreates this, they will be my favorite person in history. It was this video of scenes from Hammer movies of Peter Cushing slapping people. <laughs> oh, that's... This is the greatest thing I've ever I seen. I need this. That's awesome. But we, we also need... We need a boon cut, too. I know earlier that I complained a little bit about, like, why do we need all these different versions? And in the case of Blade Runner, I think my frustration is justified because, like, how many times can you recut your own movie? In the case of Nightbreed, like, I am glad that these different versions exist because it was footage that he was forced to take out. And he's not just sort of like arbitrarily deciding to make different cuts of the film 30 years later. What hurts the movie, I think, a bit is that he wasn't allowed to film everything that he wanted to either. And that's the thing. You know, they can reassemble as best they can. But there is a lot of stuff that you feel is missing that he really probably wanted to get and wasn't able able to because of the studio pressures. Yeah, it's such a shame. Now, I've seen Hellraiser, and I've even seen Hellbound, but I haven't seen Lord of Illusions. Is that worth watching? Yeah, Absolutely. I love Lord of Illusions. Lord of Illusions actually was one of those movies that I didn't watch. Like, as much as I loved Clive Barker in my teens, I had heard that Lord of Illusions was awful when it came out. And so I waited probably four or five years after it was released and like rented it on a whim. And it's great. There's so much stuff in there that I think would make a great series or even a sequel, even like two or three movies or a whole TV show like Nightbreed. And I guess like Hellraiser, he just is so good at creating these universes where there's so much interesting stuff in the background, and Lord of Illusions definitely has that. Yeah, you you have to see it. It's a really good quintessential horror noir. It really grabs both elements of that together perfectly. In comparison comparison to this, while the story doesn't compel me as much as Nightbreed does, you can see that Barker's Chops as a filmmaker have really improved. It's The filmmaking technique is fantastic. Unfortunately, he's one of those guys who just keeps running into trouble with the studios. It It's really telling that the movie that he had less studio interference on was the most commercially and critically successful Hellraiser. After that, they kept messing with him, and that was the case with Lord of Illusions 2, where they made him take out a bunch of the noir stuff and just really compromise it and really didn't promote it properly if you think about the plots of hellraiser lord of illusions and nightbreed the least mainstream the least accessible is hellraiser it's like here are these snm demons from another dimension that are gonna tear your flesh and your soul and the studio is like yeah cool whatever and these other two which are a little bit more normal than that they have a problem with like i just don't understand it's all about the fact that Hellraiser was such a tiny budget. And then once uh, Barker was working with actual studio money, then all of a sudden psh, they all show up and tamp him down. They do make a really nice trilogy of this theme of people sort of attracted to the dark side and these weird kind of dark paranormal word worlds. All three of them do have a sort of detective character who has to sort of solve some sort of mystery. And I mean, in Lord of Illusions, it's a literal detective. I was so confused because that came out in 95, and I want to say it came out right around the same time as In the Mouth of Madness. 
And I don't know why, but I just kind of got those two films mashed together in my head. Maybe the commercials were similar or something. So I finally just watched In the Mouth of Madness, and I guess I owe it to myself to watch Lord of Illusions. You just saw In the Mouth of Madness? How dare you, sir? (laughs) Yeah, maybe about a year ago. Whoa. But I really wish that at the end of the commercial for Lord of Illusions that Scott Bakula would have said, oh boy. Someone should definitely do a Lord of Illusions cut where they just drop in lines from Quantum Leap (laughs) and where Dean Stockwell randomly appears to give him advice. (laughs) Ziggy says you've got a 5% chance of making this out alive, Sam. At some (laughs) random point in the movie, he just disappears in a ball of light and that's it. That's the end of the movie. (laughs) (laughs) That would be great. I didn't know Kevin J. O'Connor is in that because, man, I love Kevin oh, J. O'Connor. Oh, he's great in it, too. He's really yeah. good in it, yeah. He actually gets to play a somewhat more straight role than he normally does, and he's terrific. Yeah, he's less whiny. He's almost enough to make me want to watch Eleven Twenty Two Sixty Three. Almost. Is it the Franco thing keeping you away on that one? Or? Yeah. Yes, yeah, yes, it is. Yeah, yes, it is. I don't think And I the know Stephen King is. thing because, well, it's basically a guy goes back in time, what is it, to save yeah. Kennedy? Great book. Oh. Fantastic book, but... So, we'll see. I mean, does it end well? Does Kennedy get shot? Uh, <laughs> things happen, I'll say that much. I've got two more little things, actually, I do want to bring up. Watching it this time, I really appreciate some of the fascinating, subtle sound work. I don't know if you noticed that uh, in two key scenes between Boone and Decker, uh, when he's giving him the pills and in during that meeting in the office, and when he confronts them during the day in uh, Midian when they have that confrontation... They've added these weird, creepy whispers to the soundtrack very subtly, which I wasn't sure if it was and in the first scene. It feels like it's implying Boone's madness. And then when you get to the next one, it almost feels like now it's implying Decker's madness, which is kind of cool. And a really tiny one I like is that when Laurie is identifying Boone's body in the morgue, you hear a tiny little sliver of uh, Johnny get angry. And it's like she's thinking back to the last time she saw him alive at the show when he was in the audience. I did notice one thing that they fixed in the director's cut, which is. When Narcisse is cutting off his face, you hear a woman scream, but there's no woman whatsoever. I noticed that too, yeah. <laughs> and it's just like, what are you doing? Where is that woman's scream coming from? There's no nurse standing at the doorway at that point. It was so strange. By the way, I don't know if you guys have spotted him, but supposedly Neil Gaiman is somewhere in that crowd scene during the club performance. I still have not found him. I've seen a still picture of what he looks like in there. It's like him with a black cowboy hat. He's somewhere in there. I've never been able to find him. That's crazy. I didn't know that. Apparently, he was hanging out in the set and decided he'd just pop into the scene. I do love those extras for the disc. The uh, I guess it was the director's cut. They really did some great extras for that. The whole Tribes of the Moon thing, the deleted scenes, the interview with Goldblatt. Just so many good things on that disc. Yeah, it's nice that it finally is at least, or at least recently, has gotten some more love. One other thing I got to bring up is the marketing of this movie. It was so terrible. Uh, The original movie poster, not the one with all the creatures on it. Have you seen the original one they marketed the movie with? Oh, my God. Yeah. Which looked like a ripoff of another horror film. And I'm trying to remember what it was. It was like the 
Okay, yeah, and I'm just like, what? Because I never saw that one until I was looking up research for this, and I was just like, why would you do that? Yeah, that is awful. And the eyes don't even belong to Anne Bobby or any other actress I can identify in the movie. They're just some random actress's eyes that they just stick on there with that really terrible tagline of, you know, Lori thought she knew her boyfriend. She was wrong, which... Again, uh, in combination with the TV spots, really makes it look like a slasher movie, that Boone is just the guy in the button face mask chasing her around trying to kill her. It's really no wonder that people saw those ads and went, yeah, that's not for me. It also is so unfair because even if you saw those ads and you thought, great, I love slasher movies, like this is the opposite of a slasher movie. And that's a big thing I wanted to bring up. I feel like along with the gay subtext to it, this is Clive Barker sort of pitting slasher movies against the universal monsters in a way. I feel like the breed has so many qualities about them that remind me of the old universal characters. They share so many traits, the whole, they drink blood and they can't go out in the daylight like Dracula. They're resurrected from the dead like the mummy. They're monstrous, but they want love too, like the creature from the Black Lagoon and Frankenstein. And then op- opposite them, you have your kind of proto slasher guy or basic slasher guy, guy in a mask, guy with a knife, doesn't really have mo- much of a motivation just killing people. And I feel like it's Barker saying, no, don't look at that. Look at these cool creatures. Look at this mythology. Isn't this more interesting? Horror could be more like this instead of just people being randomly hacked to pieces. He's more interested in the fantasy elements than the horror elements. I mean, it even shows in Decker's massacre scenes how little blood there really really is. Like that attack on the family, it's shot pretty tastefully. You don't really see a lot. He's not really interested in the gore in those scenes. In fact, I think the grossest thing in the movie is that pastry that falls on the floor that that woman picks up and tries to salvage. Dear God, that's disgusting. (laughs) But that's, I think, also one of the things that I like so much about the way Decker's character is presented is... Everything is cut, like you said, very tastefully. And I think what's frightening about him is that so much is left up to suggestion. And it's not just, you know, here's this huge bloodbath with teenagers getting their heads chopped off and things that you would see in like a typical slasher movie. But it's sort of more the idea that you know what he's capable of and you know that he wants to kill presumably everyone on the planet. I think the most effective shot in the movie is those tomatoes that roll across the floor with the blood. I, I really like that image that. really sticks out for me. For me, it's that shot right after of the kid just standing at the top of the stairs and Decker just finally turning that corner and going up the stairs. As an audience member, you're oh, like, no, no yes. he's not going to kill the kid, is he? Oh, yeah. God, yes, he is. And we don't need to see it. That's all we need to see to know what's going to happen and just how horrifying it is. And that the kid's not screaming. He's just kind of backing up almost like, yep, I knew this was going to happen. I knew this nightmare was going to come true eventually. There are some really effective moments in this film. And it is a shame that he never got to flesh it out and be able to shoot everything that he wanted to shoot. I think it's a shame that he was so dispirited after Lord of Illusions, all the interference that he never directed another film. I mean, he's produced some and helped co-write some, but he never really directed another film. And I would have loved to have seen where else Barker would have gone cinematically. I know it's, it's so tragic. Well, and then all of his health problems. I, when I listen to the audio commentary, I'm just like, wow, what happened to him? And then having to go and look up and hear that he was in a coma and that he got toxic shock and just all of these horrible things that happened to the man. I felt terrible. Yeah, he had for a bad him. run. Yeah. And he's such a brilliant writer. Even though he only made a handful of films, I think he's somebody who just, I'm so grateful for how influential he is because he is such an unconventional 
figure. Like, growing up, it, it felt like everybody I knew who was reading horror fiction was either really into Stephen King or H.P. Lovecraft or some sort of combination of the two. And I'm definitely also a big Lovecraft fan, but I always kind of hated Stephen King and Clive Barker just felt like the opposite of that to me. It still sort of surprises me that he became just this sort of like towering figure in mainstream horror, considering not only that he's openly gay, especially at the time, but that all of his characters seem to just be these like weirdo outcasts. And I just, you know, I would love it if he would say, surprise, I'm making a new film tomorrow. But I'm just so glad that we have the films that we do. In terms of creating mythologies, I feel like he really is one of the best and just has such a distinctive voice. Yeah, you're right, Sam. He was totally the, if you're not reading King, you're reading Barker. And that really says something about you and how your tastes run different than the rest of the mainstream that's reading the Stephen King stuff. It's funny, in my school, it was like Fear Street and Christopher Pike, Stephen King, Clive Barker. <laughs> oh, man, I forgot about Christopher Pike. <laughs> Maybe Dean Arcoon somewhere in somewhere. Christopher Pike, wasn't he the uh, captain of the Enterprise? Or Nicholas Pike, sorry, the other one. <laughs> Whichever Pike it was. Okay. But Fear- no, no, that no, no. There's his name is Christopher. Oh, okay, Pike. good. I thought I got it wrong. <laughs> uh, Mike, you probably don't know about Christopher Pike because he wrote these. I don't know who the target audience was. I think it was teenage girls. I, I'm not totally clear on that, but it was basically like if Judy Bloom started writing slasher novels, <laughs> they were they were like <laughs> they were like always about cheerleaders or like babysitters or football players and horrible things were always happening to them like the bus on the way to a football game crashed and everyone came back as a zombie or like that kind of shit there was also this series around it was sort of like a precursor to something like scream where there was this chain letter that went around and if you got the chain letter it was sort of like Scream meets The Ring, where it's like these high school students, they're, they're nuts. They're really campy. But when I was like 12, they were a lot of fun. That sounds pretty awesome. I actually skipped right over those right to Stephen King, so I never got to experience those. You know what? You're not missing out. I want to thank my co-hosts, Sam and Tim. So, Sam, what has been happening in your world lately? Well, I spent the summer finishing a book, and I sort of tried to stop working on everything else. But I still have a couple commentaries in the works. One that just got announced recently was Britannia Hospital, probably Lindsay Anderson's most insane film, I I think. (laughs) And other than that, I'm not sure what will have been announced. So... Yeah, lots in the works, but I I don't know what I could talk about, which is, I know it's annoying. And how about you, Tim? What's keeping you busy? Well, uh, for October, we're planning a couple big episodes to uh, commemorate a couple anniversaries. Since it's the 100th anniversary of The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, we're going to be covering that movie. And since it's the 60th anniversary of Psycho, we're going to be doing that one as well. Plus, normally here in Boston, we go into Brookline right before Halloween for 12 hours of horror movies at Coolidge Corner. And since well, that's clearly not going to happen, we're going to try kind of our first live tweetathon on October 24th, uh, that Saturday at midnight. We're going to do 12 hours of horror movies and invite people to tweet along with us. Uh, we'll have all of the uh, lineup figured out by then and uh, whatever hashtag that you need to follow. But it's going to be a lot of fun. No, that sounds great. 
And you're sure that we'll not be out of this by then? I mean, I thought the sunshine was supposed to cure us. I've been dousing myself internally with UV light, and um, I just haven't seen any effects. It glows really cool, though. I look really neat. I'll say that much. You're going to turn into the Incredible Melting Man if you're not careful. Okay, that would be the least interesting night breed to be. <laughs> Thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find a link over to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world. What you would do You stood there And hung your head Made me wish that I were dead Oh, Johnny, get angry Johnny, get mad Give me the biggest lecture I ever had Constantly, when he does, you never speak. Must you always be so meek? Oh, Johnny, get angry. Johnny, get mad. Give me the biggest lecture I ever had. I want a brave man. I want a caveman. Johnny, show me that you care, really care for me. Someone who she can always look up to You know I love you, of course Let me know that you're the boss So Johnny, get angry, Johnny, get mad Give me the biggest lecture I ever had I want a brave man, I want a caveman Johnny, show me that you care, really care If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.